Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States. Episode 3.39, The Plains of Abraham. By the beginning of September 1759, James Wolfe was growing increasingly frustrated. Personally, the man was in constant pain, suffering from fever as a result of kidney stones, an ailment that kept him frequently bedridden. More than that, however, Wolfe was upset at Quebec's stubborn defense. Since July the 12th, Wolfe's men had been relentless in their shelling of the city from their position across the St. Lawrence River at Point Levis. Following a failed attempt by Wolfe to move men across the Montmorency River at the end of July, he spent all of August conducting a terror campaign against the city. Throughout the entire month, British artillery continued to rain down on the already largely destroyed town. Farms were burned, people were killed. And yet, as August gave way to September, Wolfe was no closer to capturing Quebec than he was upon his arrival back in June. September brought with it something else, however, and for the British, it was a potential enemy far greater than the French. With September came the real threat of looming cold weather. The British fleet supporting Wolfe would have to evacuate the river prior to ice forming. Otherwise, they would risk becoming trapped. For the French, this was the plan. Hold out long enough that the British have to withdraw because of weather, and then cross their fingers that Britain and France would make a peace. What Wolfe really needed at this point was something to end the stalemate and bring the battle for Quebec to a quick conclusion. What the British needed to do was force an open field battle, hoping that it would dislodge the French. Montcalm had zero interest in giving Wolfe an open battle, considering that he had a whole lot more to lose and little to gain from such an engagement. The burden, therefore, fell onto the shoulders of Wolfe to force Montcalm's hand. It would need to be the British that instigated the battle that they so desperately needed. With the campaign season quickly moving towards its conclusion, Wolfe decided that, despite the advice of his brigadier generals, he did not want to leave without taking one final shot at capturing the city. Wolfe had a few options. The French remained well entrenched along the Beauport coast, the location that both Montcalm and Vaudreuil viewed as the most logical landing spot. The better option for the British at this point seemed to be moving further up the St. Lawrence and attacking Quebec from the south. An attack from the south gave the British two distinct advantages. First, Montcalm had taken fewer precautions to protect Quebec from a landing from the south of the city, though fewer does not mean none at all. Recall from last week that he did have Bougainville and some 1,000 militia protecting the coast. Montcalm, however, had become more concerned about the possibility of a landing and had decided to move additional people into the region just to be safe. The second advantage for the British is that the attack further south could potentially sever French supply lines and totally cut off Quebec. Remember again that Montcalm, as a backup plan, had kept his supplies some 50 miles south of Quebec itself in Batiscan. The hope being that if things really went sideways in Quebec, the troops could withdraw to the south to Batiscan, where they could collect themselves and regroup. It was an emergency contingency to be sure one that Montcalm certainly didn't want to have to rely upon. However, if Quebec was lost, maybe Canada as a whole could still be saved. This, however, was always a risky move for the French, 
as the long supply lines were potentially vulnerable to British attack and were at risk of being cut off. Attacking to the south of Quebec also was not without serious risk for the British. The French had batteries in place to prevent the British Navy from moving into position. Trying to move further upriver put the British at risk of being destroyed by the French defenses. This fear was at least somewhat mollified, because the British had successfully moved several ships past the French batteries already. However, we are now discussing a far greater number of ships attempting to sneak past the French positions, hence escalating the risk to the British. Despite these risks, Wolfe's generals agreed that the best plan was to shoot up the St. Lawrence and land to the south of Quebec. The three brigadier generals, Murray, Moncton, and Townsend, as well as Charles Saunders, the leader of the British fleet, agreed that this was the best move to make. Take all the men hanging out in Point Levis, along the northern bank of the Montmorency River, and most of those on Ile d'Orléans, race them up the St. Lawrence, and attack from the south. Montcalm, with his supply line severed, would be forced to engage the British in the field and hopefully break the deadlock before the winter set in. While this all seems well and good, Wolfe never seemed to really be in love with the idea. Throughout the first part of September, it became clear to Montcalm that something was up. The British had removed their troops from the Montmorency and dropped them south onto the other side of the St. Lawrence. Based on these movements, Montcalm believed that the British landing was going to, once again, be near Beauport, likely somewhere around the St. Charles River. Montcalm, in response, began moving his men around, preparing for the looming attack. So, as a quick recap, Wolfe's brigadier generals wanted to move further up the St. Lawrence and attack the city from the south, hitting those under Bougainville's command. Montcalm believed the strike was going to be near the St. Charles River, and Wolfe himself was not happy about any of it. It is here where Wolfe starts looking more seriously at a small site called Ansa Oufoulon. Ansa Oufoulon was much closer to the main city than either of the two potential landing sites. The small cove was located along those steep bluffs that had forced the British to pick a spot either along the Beauport coast or to the south. What Wolfe was looking at now was a small path along the cliffs that, while not exactly an easy climb, was climbable nonetheless. Despite these challenges, the real advantage of Ansaufoulon was the location. First, it was much closer to the city than either of the other two landing sites, and, should the British land successfully, would have put them in a good position, as they could quickly move out onto the open plains of Abraham. Second, the location was very lightly guarded. Montcalm had his men stationed along those points where he thought a landing was possible. The steep cliffs provided enough of an obstacle that the location could be lightly garrisoned. Montcalm was not expecting a landing to come along the cliffs, and therefore did not waste men on guarding them. Wolf, liking what he saw, but not wanting the word to get out, told literally nobody. Wolf planned the attack for September 13th. However, it was not until people came to him right before it was time to depart and asked exactly where they were going that Wolf revealed that the plan was to land at Foulon, scale the cliffs, and take up positions on the plains of Abraham. Wolf and his men departed around 2 a.m. on the morning of September 13th. 
The first landings came a few hours later, with William Howe and the regiment under his command being the first to disembark. Howe's initial landings went about as well as anybody could have hoped. His men were quickly able to scale the cliffs and began taking up positions. Now, while we have focused on the fact that the vast majority of the French were positioned either above the city, where Bougainville was, or along the Beauport shore, where Montcalm was, this did not mean that absolutely nobody was guarding the cliffs. Sure enough, a small French garrison quickly realized what was happening and opened fire on the British, making their way up the cliffs. This first engagement, however, would prove short. Soon after it began, the British overwhelmed the French and quickly controlled a foothold atop the cliffs, allowing the larger body of the army to land. About the only good news for the French is that before the outpost was overrun, the French commander was able to dispatch a messenger to inform Montcalm that they had a serious problem on their hands. In short order, Wolfe had captured the high ground and started the process of establishing his lines. The landing was, with no question, a spectacular success for Wolfe. By daybreak, some 4,500 British troops were assembling themselves into lines on the Plains of Abraham, with virtually no French resistance. Upon learning of what had happened up on the plains, Montcalm quickly started pulling his men off the Beauport line and rushing them back across the St. Charles River towards the British landing site. As the French scrambled to reach the plains, the British had ample time to prepare for the battle. The main British line was made up of six battalions, running from the cliffs along the right side, out west across the plains. When formed up, the battalions were spaced roughly 100 feet from each other in three deep formations. The area of the landing was primarily farmlands, and the tall wheat fields provided the British with cover. As a result, rather than the men spending their time and ultimately their energy entrenching on the morning of the 13th, they simply laid down on their stomachs. Other than some light skirmishing towards the left flank of the British lines, Wolfe and his men had, thus far, met with virtually no resistance. For Montcalm, this was nothing short of a catastrophe. The French general was well convinced that Beauport was going to be the site of the landing. The British had been giving every indication that they could that an attack was coming along Beauport. In the days leading up to the 13th, they had been conspicuously marking locations with buoys right off the Beauport coast. Suddenly, however, Montcalm found himself with a British army landing in a spot that he had never expected that they would, or even really could, land. Making matters worse for the French commander was that the southwest defenses of Quebec were the weakest point, and surviving a siege was out of the question. Contributing to Montcalm's headache was a question over the relative skill of the opposing forces. While the French and British numerically had approximately the same number of men, the British army was made up entirely of regular troops, whereas Montcalm was working with a more motley arrangement of regulars and newly inducted Canadians. All of this on top of the fact that while Wolfe was just hanging out and waiting, Montcalm was frantically trying to bring his men into something resembling meaningful order. Montcalm undoubtedly understood the stakes as he prepared to give the command for his men to advance. 
Should the British gain control over the Plains of Abraham and defeat the French, Quebec was immediately at grave risk. Further, the attack just south of the main town meant that the supply lines and the ability to retreat should Quebec fall would be severely threatened. With the French as ready as they were ever going to be, at around 10 a.m. Montcalm gave the order to advance, as the French set out marching forward in three columns. The British fired a few volleys of grape shot into the approaching French force, but mostly they just waited. Even after the first French volley, from right beyond some 150 yards, the British remained disciplined and awaited their moment. At this range, there was no practical accuracy from the French muskets. The hope was more that by firing they would cause some casualties, largely at random, and provoke the British into flinching. The British did not flinch. They held their formations and did not return fire. Among those hit during that first volley was Wolfe himself, who was shot in the wrist. He simply wrapped it up, and the British continued to wait. They would continue to wait until the French were within 40 yards of their line. It was then that Wolfe gave the order, and the men fired. By waiting to fire for as long as he did, Wolfe ensured that the first British volley was devastating, having waited long enough that their fire was accurate and hit the mark. That first volley caused the French advance to stop as though it had slammed into a brick wall. The French, who had just moments before been advancing, somewhat haphazardly, towards the British lines, were now in full retreat. The British, smelling blood in the water, wasted no time giving chase. Wolfe was personally leading the 28th Regiment on the far right side of the line. As he led his men forward, the regiment ran into French and Canadian marksmen hiding in the cornfields. Though the British quickly got control of the battle, Wolfe himself was struck, once in the stomach and another time in the chest. A few weeks after the battle, this thing was described by James Henderson, the man who not only was the closest in proximity to Wolfe when he was hit, but allegedly who had held Wolfe as he lay dying. In his letter, Henderson, who was himself shot twice in the shoulder and thigh at the same time, writes that he carried Wolf from the field. Henderson states that upon opening his coat, he saw that Wolf was drenched in blood and was well aware of his impending death. After telling Henderson to worry about his own wounds, Wolf inquired about the battle and was, at that moment, informed by an unnamed officer that the French were giving ground. Wolfe responded by smiling and saying some version of, I die contented, though the exact wording is up for debate. Well, we always have to question the dying words of Wolfe here. By the time of his death, the battle was basically over. There was more fighting to be done, but the British were clearly going to win the day. There was a momentary bit of confusion for the British as to who exactly was now in command. The job should have gone to Moncton. However, he was busy trying not to die after he had also been shot in the chest. Moncton, though in a bad way at the moment, will indeed survive his wounds. James Murray was still heavily engaged with the French and Indian forces, where the fighting remained the heaviest. Finally, somebody was able to get hold of Townsend and let him know about the situation. He would assume command for the rest of the battle. 
James Wolfe was not the only major casualty of September 13th either. At some point during the battle, Montcalm, who had been riding his horse, was also struck. Although he would limp back into Quebec itself and get within the temporary safety of its walls, his wounds were serious. Serious enough that the next day, he too would die. Just like that, both the leading commanders of the operations in Quebec were dead. The French had just lost the commander of their entire war effort, at a moment when the survival of French Canada was suddenly very much at risk. Now, if you have been paying attention, you may be asking just what Bougainville was up to. The French army that had been along the Beauport coast was defeated and was now being routed by the rapidly advancing British. However, recall that Bougainville and his army were hanging out to the south, meaning that the French had a final hope of relief. Townsend would quickly realize this as well. He immediately ordered that the British cease their advance and regroup into their units. Should Bougainville have made it to the battle in time and the British were disorganized because of their advance, the outcome could have been much different. By the time that Bougainville did arrive, Montcalm's army had been soundly defeated, though Bougainville himself was unaware of that critical fact. Bougainville, upon his arrival and finding the British line, decided that he was best served by pulling back to better reassess the situation, rather than just engaging. This delay allowed the British to begin establishing their now inevitable siege of Quebec. At the end of the 13th, the British were in firm control over the Plains of Abraham, and were well at work on preparing their siege. In a letter written by a man named Thomas More, who was either at the battle personally or was informed about it, we learn that the British had somewhere in the realm of 800 casualties during the battle. Nearly 15,000 French and Canadians had made their way into Quebec, which would soon be totally cut off. The letter from Moore also states that the French had abandoned their remaining positions along the Beauport shore, abandoned their batteries, and had blown up their magazines. I will say that, especially with the numbers, we should be careful here. Well, the letter tells some of the aftermath of the battle that does fit. As we will discuss in a moment, the French did indeed abandon the Beauport shore, leaving their artillery behind. However, that number of 15,000 French fleeing into the confines of the city does seem to be a bit on the high side. Well, things had been bad for the French. They could have been much worse. The casualties had been heavy, but not really all that much worse than the British numbers. British casualties, despite the numbers we get from Thomas More, appear closer to 650. French casualties are a little over 700, with somewhere between 300 and 800 men having been captured. The halt by Townsend to deal with the approaching Bougainville meant that the French army was able to avoid total destruction. While the battle failed in just outright destroying the French army, it does not change the fact that Canada itself was now in a very unstable position. One of the defining aspects of this battle had been the fact that the leadership corps had been hit so incredibly hard. For the British, we have already discussed Wolfe, who died on the field. Moncton was seriously wounded, and while he did survive, it certainly was not clear that he was going to do that on the 13th. This led to that brief crisis in leadership when the British ended up calling upon Townsend 
to take over control. The French fared little better than their British counterparts, and they too had taken very serious losses to their officer corps. Montcalm made it back into the city, but he too was going to die during the early morning hours of the 14th. Along with Montcalm, both the lieutenant colonels who went into the battle with him were now also either dead or dying. Bougainville had moved west to protect his army and was, at the moment, out of contact with Quebec. Command would end up shifting back to Vaudreuil, who had little concept of the current situation. He had remained in Beauport during the battle and lacked a clear understanding of the British positions. Vaudreuil knew well that Quebec was a total lost cause. However, the army survived and could move south to protect Montreal. Now, to get into position to actually protect Montreal was going to be a bit more of a problem. The French army had withdrawn north to their holdings in Beauport. Moving troops directly south was obviously out of the question, lest they want to slam right back into the British lines that had just nearly annihilated them. Rather, the French troops would end up marching to the north, well past the St. Charles River, and then turning around and taking a long, looping path well to the west of Quebec, regrouping at Jacques Cartier. The men from there could move south towards Montreal. The French, as we had discussed just a moment ago, looking at that letter from Thomas More, did indeed abandon their holdings on Beauport, leaving behind, somewhat bafflingly, their artillery. With most of the army now off on their long walk, first north and then west, the defense of Quebec was left to some 2,200 troops. To be clear, these guys were not the cream of the crop either. The good soldiers, the regulars, were off with Vaudreuil, trying to make their way around the British. The 2,200 left behind in Quebec were left with some 4,000 civilians and injured parties to care for. Really, though, nobody was under any illusion that Quebec was going to somehow survive this. Everybody knew that the city was going to fall. It was just a matter of time. However, for Vaudreuil, he would have greatly preferred it to fall later rather than sooner. The British quickly jumped into doing what had been the objective all along. They had won their field battle. Now was the time for them to get to work and start the process of laying siege to Quebec itself. Townsend quickly ordered that traditional siege lines be dug, while Saunders and the Navy swung around into position to begin blasting away at Quebec. Although by midday on the 14th, Quebec was fully cut off and officially under siege, the British did not begin the standard bombardment right away. Rather, what occurred was several days of preparations, instead of any attempt to begin shelling the city. While the British held their fire, those trapped within Quebec made the most of their cannons. However, this was mostly more of a show than to any meaningful effect. Those who remained in Quebec were not a happy bunch. You had civilians, the sick and the wounded, and a few soldiers left to try to hold everything together. Making matters worse is that now that the town's supply lines had been cut, they were looking down the barrel of a potentially serious food shortage. Inside the beleaguered city, there was only three days' worth of food. While there had been a substantial amount of supplies at the camp in Beauport, in the French urgency to get out of Dodge as quickly as they could, those supplies had simply been abandoned. 
by September 17th, it was looking increasingly like the British were about to begin their bombardment. Jean-Baptiste Ramsey, the major in Quebec who was nominally in charge of the French defenses, decided that he had held out long enough and that the time had come to open up negotiations. Ramsey had hoped that maybe he would be able to negotiate long enough to allow Vaudreuil and his troops the time they needed to regroup and attempt to retake the city. However, time was really not on his side. Negotiations for the British were led by Saunders and Townsend, who seemed equally eager to wrap things up, as colder weather was still looming, and with it, the prospect of ice jamming up the St. Lawrence. The result of this is that the British gave pretty light terms to the French. For the first time since the events at Fort William Henry, the French were allowed to walk away with the honors of war. The regulars were to be transported back to France under a flag of truce, while the militia members could lay down their arms and remain in Canada with their families. The British agreed to respect the private property rights of the civilian population. The British wanted to quickly get a peace settlement in place, as they were also not oblivious to the reality that the French were probably going to regroup and try to retake the city. Knowing this, the British were hardly in a position to enact harsh terms on the population. In fact, it was critical to the British that the population have little interest in rejoining the fight. Sure enough, as it turns out, the French were indeed marching an army back towards Quebec with plans to retake the city. This army, under the command of the Chevalier de Lévis, upon learning of the surrender, ended up turning around and heading back to the safety of Jacques Cartier. Following the British victory at Quebec, command of the British army stationed there fell into the hands of James Murray. Townsend decided that, all things considered, he had had enough fun for one day and returned to England. Moncton would travel to New York to continue to recover from his wounds. Saunders, by the middle part of October, was forced to pull his fleet back north to avoid getting frozen in the St. Lawrence. By the time that Amherst had learned what took place up in Quebec, the first signs of winter had begun to set in. Amherst, who was still hanging out, making plans to move on Illinois, was thrilled at the news that Quebec had fallen and quickly cancelled his planned expedition on the island. This had come at a convenient time for Amherst, as it gave him the opportunity to put his regulars into winter quarters and, more importantly, dismiss the increasingly annoyed provincials. Amherst had become concerned with a rise in mutinous machinations by the disillusioned provincial troops. Being able to dismiss them and send them home, rather than having to turn to more repressive means of getting control over the provincials, was a welcomed gift. When attempting to evaluate 1759, we must both consider the overall British success, but also their overall objective. From a perspective of winning battles, the British had clearly taken the year. They had won the vast majority of their battles and, outside of a few isolated examples, had a successful year in the field. They had captured Crown Point in Quebec. The British victory at Niagara had ended any real hope that the French would be able to recapture the forks of the Ohio and restart the native raids on the Pennsylvania, Maryland, and Virginia frontiers. However, if the primary British aim was to force the complete capitulation of Canada, 
and the primary French objective was to survive for another year, we must consider 1759 in another light. The British did not force the capitulation of Canada, which means that the French had survived another year. At least for the moment, the French could cross their fingers that a peace would be reached and that the war would end before fighting restarted in the spring. As 1759 came to an end, the French had their eyes set on recapturing Quebec in the early spring, while British hopes were pinned on both holding Quebec and taking the last existing French stronghold in Canada in Montreal. Next time, we move our story into 1760. With the French on the ropes, the British have their sights set on the complete collapse of Canada. First, however, they are going to have to hold on to Quebec before moving down towards Montreal. Until then, I hope you all have an excellent two weeks. I hope that you are staying healthy and staying safe. As a reminder, if you have any questions that you want to submit for our Q&A episode, get those over to me. With that, I will see you back here next time as we turn to the Battle of Montreal and the collapse of Canada. <laughs>